David Hume, a treatise on human nature. Section 6 of Personal Identity. There are some philosophers who imagine we are every moment intimately conscious of what we call our self, that we feel its existence and its continuous in its existence and a certain beyond the evidence of a demonstration, both of its perfect identity and simplicity. The strongest sensation, the most violent passion, say they, instead of distracting us from this view, only fix it the more intensely and make us consider their influence on self, either by their pain or pleasure. To attempt a farther proof of this, were to weaken its evidence, since no proof can be derived from any fact of which we are so intimately conscious, nor is there anything of which we can be certain if we doubt this. Unluckily, all these positive assertions are contrary to that very experience, which is pleaded for them, nor have we any idea of self after the manner it is here explained. For from what impression could this idea be derived? This question is impossible to answer without a manifest contradiction and absurdity, and yet it is a question which must necessarily be answered if we would have the idea of a self pass for clear and intelligible. It must be some one impression that gives rise to every real idea. But self or person is not any one impression, but that to which our several impressions and ideas are supposed to have a reference. If any impression gives rise to the idea of self, that impression must continue invariably the same. Through the whole course of our lives, since self is supposed to exist after that manner, but there is no impression constant and invariable. Pain and pleasure, grief and joy, passions and sensations succeed each other and never all exist at the same time. It cannot, therefore, be from any of these impressions or from any other that the idea of self is derived, and consequently there is no such idea. But Father, what must become of all of our particular perceptions under this hypothesis? All these are different and distinguishable and separable from each other and may be separated, separately considered and may exist separately and have no need of anything to support their existence. After what manner, therefore, do they belong to self and how are they connected with it? For my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I never can catch myself at any time without a perception and never can observe anything but the perception. When my perceptions are removed from any time as by sound sleep, so long am I insensible of myself, and may truly be said not to exist.
And were all my perceptions removed by death, and could I neither think nor feel nor see nor love nor hate after the dissolution of my body, I should be entirely annihilated. Nor do I conceive what is far the requisite to make me a perfect non-entity. If any one, upon serious and unprejudiced reflection, thinks he has a different notion of himself, I must confess I can reason no longer with him. All I can allow him is that he may be in the right as well as I, and that we are essentially different in this particular. He may perhaps perceive something simple and continued, which he calls himself, though I am certain no such principle in me. But setting aside the metaphysicians of this kind, I may venture to affirm of the rest of mankind that they are nothing but a bundle or collection of different perceptions which succeed each other with an inconceivable rapidity and are in a perpetual flux and movement. Our eyes cannot turn in their sockets without varying these perceptions. Our thought is still more variable than our sight, and all our other senses and faculties contribute to this change. Nor is there any single power of the soul which remains unalterably the same, perhaps for one moment. The mind is a kind of theatre where several perceptions successively make their appearance, pass, repass, glide away and mingle in an infinite variety of postures and situations. There is properly no simplicity in it at one time, nor identity indifferent. Whatever natural propension we may have to imagine that simplicity and identity, the comparison of the theatre must not mislead us. They are the successive perceptions only that constitute the mind, nor have we the most distant notion of the place where these scenes are represented or of the materials of which it is composed. What then gives us so great a propension to ascribe an identity to these successive perceptions and to suppose ourselves possessed of an invariable and uninterrupted existence through the whole course of our lives. In order to answer this question, we must distinguish betwixt personal identity as it regards our thought and imagination and as it regards our passion or the concern we take in ourselves. The first is our present subject, and to explain it perfectly, we must take the matter pretty deep and account for that identity which we attribute to plants and animals, there being a great analogy betwixt it, and the identity of a self or person. We have a distinct idea of an object that remains invariable and uninterrupted through a supposed variation of time. And this idea we call that of identity or sameness. We have also a distinct idea of several different objects existing in succession and connected together by a close relation. And this to an accurate view affords as a perfect notion of diversity, as if there were no manner of relation among the objects. But though these two ideas of identity and a succession of related objects be in themselves perfectly distinct and even contrary, yet it is certain that in our common way of thinking they are generally confounded with each other, 
That action of imagination by which we consider the uninterrupted and invariable object, and that by which we reflect on the succession of related objects, are almost the same to the feeling. Nor is there much more effort of thought required in the latter case than in the former. The relation facilitates the transition of the mind from one object to another, and renders its passage as smooth as if it were as if it contemplated one continued object. This resemblance is the cause of the confusion and mistake, and makes us substitute the notion of identity instead of that of related objects. However, at one instant we may consider the related succession as variable or interrupted. We are sure the next to ascribe it to perfect identity, and regard it as invariable and uninterrupted. Our propensity to make this mistake is so great from the resemblance above mentioned that we fall into it before we are aware, and though we incessantly correct ourselves by reflection and return to a more accurate method of thinking, yet we cannot long sustain our philosophy or take off this bias from the imagination. Our last resource is to yield to it and boldly assert that these different related objects are in effect the same, however interrupted and variable. In order to justify to ourselves this absurdity, we often feign some new and unintelligible principle that connects the objects together and prevents their interruption or variation. Thus, we feign the continued existence of the perceptions of our senses to remove this interruption and run into the notion of a soul and self and substance to disguise the variation. But we may farther observe that where we do not give rise to such a fiction, our propension to confound identity with relation is so great that we are apt to imagine something unknown and mysterious connecting the parts beside their relation. And this I take to be the case with regard to the identity we ascribe to plants and vegetables, and even when this does not take place, we still feel a propensity to confound these ideas, though we are not able fully to satisfy ourselves in that particular, nor find anything invariable and uninterrupted to justify our notion of identity. Thus the controversy concerning identity is not merely a dispute of words, for when we attribute identity in an improper sense to variable and interrupted objects, our mistake is not confined to the expression, but is commonly attended with a fiction, either of something invariable and uninterrupted, or of something mysterious and inexplicable, or at least with a propensity to such fictions. What will suffice to prove this hypothesis to the satisfaction of every fair inquirer is to shew from a daily experience and observation that the objects which are variable or interrupted and yet are supposed to continue the same are such only as consist of a succession of parts connected together by resemblance, contiguity and causation. For as such a succession answers evidently to our notion of diversity, it can only be by mistake we ascribe to it an identity. And as the relation of parts which leads us into this mistake is really nothing but a quality, 
which produces an association of ideas and an easy transition of the imagination from one to another. It can only be from the resemblance which this act of the mind bears to it, by which we contemplate one continued object that the error arises. Our chief business, then, must be to prove that all objects to which we ascribe identity without observing their invariableness and uninterruptedness are such as consist of a succession of related objects. In order to do this, suppose any mass of matter of which the parts are contiguous and connected to be placed before us Tis plain we must attribute a perfect identity to this mass, provided all the parts continue uninterruptedly and invariably the same. Whatever motion or change of place we may observe, either in the whole or in any of the parts, but supposing some very small or inconsiderable part to be added to the mass or subtracted from it. Though this absolutely destroys the identity of the whole, strictly speaking, yet we seldom think so accurately. We scruple not to pronounce a mass of matter the same, where we find so trivial an alteration. The passage of thought from the object before the change to the object and after it is so smooth and easy that we scarce perceive this transition and are apt to imagine that tis nothing but a continued survey of the same object. We now proceed to explain the nature of personal identity, which has become so great a question in philosophy, especially of late years in England, where all the obtruser sciences are studied with a particular ardour and application. And here it is evident the same method of reasoning must be continued, which has so successfully explained the identity of plants and animals and ships and houses and of all the compounded and changeable productions either of art or nature. The identity which we ascribe to the mind of man is only a fictitious one, and of a like kind with that which we ascribe to vegetables and animal bodies. It cannot, therefore, have a different origin, but must proceed from a like operation of the imagination upon like objects. But lest this argument should not convince the reader, though in my opinion perfectly decisive, let him weigh the following reasoning, which is still closer and more immediate. Tis evident that the identity which we attribute to the human mind, however perfect we may imagine it to be, is not able to run the several different perceptions into one and make them lose their characters of distinction and difference which are essential to them. Tis still true that every distinct perception which enters into the composition of the mind is a distinct existence and is different and is distinguishable and separable from every other perception, either contemporary or successive. But as notwithstanding this distinction and separability, we suppose the whole train of perceptions to be united by identity. A question naturally arises concerning this relation of identity, whether it be something that really binds our several perceptions together or only associates their ideas in the imagination. 
That is, in other words, whether in pronouncing concerning the identity of a person, we observe some real bond among his perceptions or only feel one among the ideas we form of them. This question might easily decide if we would re recollect what has been already proved at large that the understanding never observes any real connection amongst objects and that even the union of cause and effect, when strictly examined, resolves itself into a customary association of ideas. For from thence it evidently follows that identity is nothing really belonging to these different perceptions and uniting them together, but is merely a quality which we attribute to them because of the union of their ideas in the imagination when we reflect on them. Now, the only qualities which can give ideas in a union in the imagination are these three relations above mentioned. These are the uniting principles in the ideal world. And without them, every distinct object is separable by the mind and may be more separately considered and appears not to have any more connection with any other object than if disjoined by the greatest difference and remoteness. Tis, therefore, on some of these three relations of resemblance, contiguity, and causation that identity depends. And as the very essence of these relations consist in their producing an easy transition of ideas, it follows that our notions of personal identity proceed entirely from the smooth and uninterrupted progress of the thought along a train of connected ideas, according to the principles above explained. The only question, therefore, which remains is by what relations this uninterrupted progress of our thought is produced. When we consider the successive existence of a mind of thinking person, and here it is evident we must confine ourselves to resemblance and causation and must drop contiguity, which has little or no influence in the present case. To begin with resemblance, suppose we could see clearly into the breast of another and observe that succession of perceptions which constitutes his mind or thinking principle. And suppose that he always preserves a memory of a considerable part of past perceptions. It is evident that nothing could more contribute to the bestowing a relation on this succession amidst it, all its variations. For what is memory but a faculty by which we raise up the images of past perceptions? And as an image necessarily resembles its object, must not the frequent placing of these resembling perceptions in the chain of thought convey the imagination more easily from one link to another and make the whole seem like a continuance of one object? In this particular, then, the memory not only discovers the identity, but also contributes to its production by producing the relation of resemblance among the perceptions. The case is the same whether we consider ourselves or others. As to causation, we may observe that the true idea of the human mind is to consider it as a system of different perceptions or different existences, which are linked together by the relation of cause and effect. 
and mutually produce, destroy, influence, and modify each other. Our impressions give rise to their correspondent ideas, and these ideas in their turn produce other impressions. One thought chases another and draws after it a third, by which it is expelled in its turn. In this respect, I cannot compare the soul more properly to anything than to a republic or commonwealth, in which the several members are united by the reciprocal government and subordination, and give rise to other persons who propagate the same republic in the incessant changes of its parts. And as the same individual republic may not only change its members, but also its laws and constitutions, in like manner, the same person may vary his character and disposition, as well as his impressions and ideas, without losing his identity. Whatever changes he endures, his several parts are still connected by the relation of causation. And in this view, our identity with regard to the passions serves to corroborate that with regard to the imagination by make, by the making our dis distant perceptions influence each other and by giving us a present concern for our past or future pains or pleasures. As memory alone acquaints us with the continuance and extent of this succession of perceptions, tis to be considered upon that account chiefly as the source of personal identity. Had we no memory, we never should have any notion of causation, nor consequently of that chain of causes and effects which constitute ourself or person. But having once acquired this notion of causation from the memory, we can extend the same chain of causes and consequently the identity of our persons beyond our memory, and can comprehend times and circumstances and actions which we have entirely forgot, but suppose in general to have existed. For how few of our past actions are there, of which we have any memory? Who can tell me, for instance, what were his thoughts and actions on the 1st of January 1715, the 11th of March 1719, and the 3rd of August 1733? Or will he affirm, because he has entirely forgotten the incidents of these days, that the present self is not the same person with the self of that time, and by that means overturn all the most established notions of personal identity? In this view, therefore, memory does not so much produce as discover personal identity. By shewing are the relation of cause and effect among different perceptions. Twill be incumbent on those who affirm that memory produces entirely our personal identity to give a reason why we can thus extend our identity beyond memory. The whole of this doctrine leads us to a conclusion, which is of great importance in the present affair, that all the nice and subtle questions concerning personal identity can never possibly be decided, and are to be regarded rather as grammatical than as philosophical difficulties. Identity then depends on the relations of ideas, and these relations produce identity by means of that easy transition they occasion.
but as the relations and the easiness of the transition may diminish by insensible degrees, we have no just standard by which we can decide any dispute concerning the time when they acquire or lose a title to the name of identity. All the disputes concerning the identity of connected objects are merely verbal, except so far as a relation of parts give rise to some fiction or imaginary principle of union, as we have already observed. What I have said concerning the first origin and uncertainty of our notion of identity, as applied to the human mind, may be extended with little or no variation to that of simplicity. An object whose different coexistent parts are bound together by a close relation operates upon the imagination after much the same manner as one perfectly simple and indivisible and requires not a much greater stretch of thought in order to its conception. From this similarity of operation, we attribute a simplicity to it and feign a principle of union as a support of this simplicity, and the centre of all the different parts and qualities of the object. Thus, we have finished our examination of the several systems of philosophy, both of the intellectual and natural world, and in our miscellaneous way of reasoning have been led to several topics which will either illustrate and confirm some preceding part of this discourse or prepare the way for our following opinions. Tis now the time to return to a more close examination of our subject and to proceed in the accurate anatomy of human nature, having fully explained the nature of our judgment and understanding.